couple of weeks ago, we finished looking at John's Gospel. At the end of John's Gospel, we saw the risen Jesus preparing his disciples for their mission. Their mission is to be his witnesses in this world. And Jesus also made clear that he was returning to heaven. He told Mary Magdalene, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now that did not mean that Jesus' followers were going to be left alone in this world. Not at all. Jesus promised that he would send his Holy Spirit. He promised that the Holy Spirit would be in Jesus' followers. And the presence of the Holy Spirit is not a minor thing. It's incredibly significant. So much so, in fact, that Jesus was able to say, those who have the Holy Spirit have the Father and the Son as well. In that same passage where he said, the Holy Spirit will be in you, Jesus went on to say, he and his Father will come to those same people and make their home with those people. Father, Son, and Spirit are so united that to have one is to have all three. The Holy Spirit represents the Father and Son to such a degree that to have the Spirit is to have the Father and Son as well. So if you're a Christian, you can experience the presence and power of God in this life. It's an incredible truth. And it is also true that while the Father and the Son are truly with us through the Holy Spirit, geographically, the Father and the Son are in heaven. Heaven is God's dwelling place. Heaven is where God the Son was before he came to this earth and took on human flesh. And the New Testament leaves us in no doubt, having died on the cross and risen from the dead, Jesus Christ, God the Son, returned to heaven. He ascended to the Father. And this week and next week, we're going to think about Jesus' position and his work today. In John's gospel, we saw his great work on earth, dying for our salvation. And now we want to think about his current work in heaven. And what we're going to see is the Son of God did not retire after the cross and resurrection. Today, he is at work. He is at work as Lord of history, and he is at work as our representative in heaven. This morning, we're going to look at his work as Lord of history. To see that, will you turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 5? If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1236. And in the larger print Bibles, 1918. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John is being shown a series of visions. And in chapter 1, he was told that these visions show both what is now and what will take place later. That's very important to keep in mind when we read the rest of the book. Revelation is not all about the future. It's about later, but it is also about what is true now, today. In fact, much of us shows what is true today. 
This morning we're looking at chapter 5, and to understand chapter 5, we need to have some idea of what chapter 4 was about. Because as we'll see, chapter 5 is a continuation of the vision which began in chapter 4. In chapter 4, John is shown a vision of the throne room of heaven. And he describes what he sees, starting with the throne itself and then moving on to describe the scene around the throne. In chapter 4, John tells us that around the throne he sees 24 elders representing the victorious people of God. And John also sees four living creatures around the throne representing God's sovereignty over all creation. And chapter 4 ended with John describing the work of the 24 elders and the four living creatures. They bring worship day and night to the one on the throne. That was chapter 4. And now as we pick up this morning in chapter 5, we find that we are still in the throne room of heaven. And having described the throne room for us, John now looks back to where he started And his focus returns to the one on the throne. And what John sees makes him weep with frustration. Look at chapter 5, verse 1, and we'll read the whole chapter. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept. Because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. This is God's Word. In John chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4, John began his description of the throne room by saying, there before me was a throne with someone sitting on it. And by the end of chapter 4, it was clear, the one on the throne is the Lord God Almighty. And now in chapter 5, as John returns to this figure on the throne, he tells us about the problem of the sealed scroll. Just have a look again at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, and sealed with seven seals. So in Almighty God's right hand, John sees something like this. Notice what we're told about it. Three things. First of all, it is in the right hand of the Lord God Almighty, meaning it is His. It belongs to Him. The contents of the scroll, whatever they are, come from Him. And then we're told this scroll has writing on both sides. Why is that worth mentioning? Well, at this time, scrolls were not made of paper. They were made of either papyrus, which is a plant, or they were made of vellum, which is animal skin. And whichever material was used, usually people only wrote on one side of the scroll. That's because both papyrus and vellum had one smooth side and one rough side. The rough side was very hard to write on. So if someone did write on both sides of the scroll, it meant they wanted to fit everything on one scroll. Scrolls had a maximum length. There's only so many bits you can join together before the thing gets unmanageable or it breaks. So scrolls had a maximum length of just over 30 feet long. And that meant if you had lots of things to write and you wanted to put it all on one scroll instead of spreading it over two, then you wrote on both sides of the scroll. So what we're being told here is that whatever this scroll is about, it's complete. There's nothing missing. There's nothing left over that would require another scroll. It's all here in this one scroll. The scroll is God's. It's complete. And the third thing we're told about it is, it is currently rolled up and it is sealed with seven seals. That tells us a couple of things. It tells us the contents of the scroll cannot be changed. 
It's sealed seven times. Seven being the number of wholeness or completeness. And the seals tell us this is the equivalent of a will. The Roman emperors Augustus and Vespasian left behind their wills sealed with seven seals. So this scroll in God's hand is God's will. It contains his plans and purposes. It contains his will for the rest of history. But, so long as the scroll remains sealed, its contents cannot be known. And equally important, its contents cannot be carried out. Until the scroll is opened, God's will cannot be put into effect. And so in verse 2, John says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? These words are spoken by a mighty angel because his challenge is going out to the whole created universe. Who among you is qualified? Who has the right? Who in all creation can approach the Almighty on his throne? Who can take the scroll from his hand and open it? Who can carry out the plans contained in the scroll? Who is worthy? Come, step forward. There's silence. The angel waits. John waits with excitement and anticipation. But eventually, John has to report in verse 3 no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Why is John weeping? What is so sad? Well, remember, what's on this scroll? It's God's will. God's purposes for history and eternity. John weeps because if the scroll stays sealed, history has no purpose. And our lives ultimately have no meaning. And where there's no meaning, there's no hope. John has seen the Lord God Almighty, the sovereign Lord of creation. If his plans go unfulfilled, then there is no plan at all. Not for the world and not for your life. In that case, the only way forward would be to try and make up some meaning for our lives. And then try not to think about the fact that we made it up. It's no wonder John weeps. Ralph Barton was a successful writer who committed suicide. And this is the note he left. Said, I have had few difficulties, many friends, great successes, 
I have gone from wife to wife, house to house, visited great countries of the world, but I'm fed up with inventing devices to fill up 24 hours of the day. As far as I know, Ralph Barton was an atheist, and he could see the full implications of his position. If there's no one on the throne of the universe, then there's no plan for the universe. And we're all just trying to invent ways to fill up our time. And equally, if there is a God with a plan, but his plan can't be carried out, then we're in exactly the same position. It's no wonder John weeps. It seems like the scroll in God's hand cannot be opened. Now, there's an obvious question we could ask at this point. Why doesn't the one on the throne just open the scroll himself? Well, the answer to that is that someone from creation is needed to open the scroll. A worthy member of creation is required if God's plans are to be fulfilled. Creation needs a representative who can approach God's throne. So far, we don't know why that is, but we know it's the case because the mighty angel has called out to all of creation. But no one has come forward. And who could come forward? Who could presume to approach the Almighty on his throne? It's no wonder John weeps. But it turns out John has wept too soon. Look at verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. A slightly better translation would be, He has triumphed, and so he is able to open the scroll. In other words, this person is able to open the scroll because he has triumphed. His triumph, whatever it is, has won him that right. Well, this is more like it. A worthy person has been found, and he sounds like a majestic individual. He's described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion is a symbol of majesty, but this particular title is picking up on the book of Genesis. The 12 tribes of Israel originated from the 12 sons of Jacob. And the book of Genesis compares Jacob's son Judah to a lion. The book is also contains a prophecy that one of Judah's descendants would rule the nations. And here in our passage in verse 5, the elder says to John, here he is, the Lion of Judah. He's also described as the Root of David. David was Israel's greatest king. He was from the tribe of Judah. So this Lion John is being told about is a human being, and apparently he is also worthy. He has triumphed in some way. And that qualifies him to open the scroll. The mighty angel has found the one he called for. 
Creation has its representative, and he is a triumphant king. So we're ready to meet this lion face to face. But when John looks, he sees not a lion, but a lamb. Verse 6, looking as if it had been slain. What's happened? Is John looking in the wrong direction? No, the lion is the lamb. And the lamb is the lion. The lion triumphed by becoming the slaughtered lamb. The one who is worthy is the triumphant lamb who is the slain, the triumphant lion who is the slain lamb. Now, by this point, we know John is looking at Jesus Christ. The first page of the New Testament traces Jesus' human ancestry back to both David and Judah. Jesus is the lion. But he's the lion who triumphed, not by crushing his enemies, but by submitting to death at the hands of his enemies, like a lamb. We'll see in a moment why that was a triumph. But it's worth realizing something that seems obvious when we say it, but it's still worth saying because it's important for understanding the book of Revelation as a whole. This vision is not showing us what Jesus physically looks like. It's pretty impossible to combine the physical appearance of a lion and a lamb. And even if we could combine it, it would be grotesque. We're not being told the risen, ascended Jesus physically looks like a lamb or a lion. We're not being told he looks like some combination of the two. No, both of those pictures tell us things about who Jesus is. They show us different aspects of who he is. He is the king who won a great victory by his death. And now he has risen from death with power. Verse 6 says he's standing at the center of the throne. In the place of supreme majesty. Verse 6 goes on to say he has seven horns. The horn is a symbol of power. Seven horns indicate complete power. The Lamb also has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. It seems the sevenfold spirit is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is sent by the Lamb. That's something we heard in John's Gospel. Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit. And here in Revelation chapter 5, it shows us the Lamb, now risen from death, has all the power and authority of the lion. He is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. And so, verse 7, He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, 
And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. The lion lamb has triumphed. That's a reason to celebrate. And heaven does celebrate with a new song. Commentators tell us that we're not to think here of music that's dreamy and ethereal. Maybe that's what we normally associate with harps. But this music is joyful. It's bouncy. Maybe we should think of ukuleles and steel drums. It's the kind of atmosphere. And along with the party music, there is a festive smell here from bowls full of incense, which symbolize the prayers of God's people. That tells us the worship of God's people on earth is added to this celebration going on in heaven. Our prayers and songs today are added to the celebration in heaven. And the opening part of this new song gives us the reason why the lion lamb is worthy to open the scroll. It's not simply because he died. It's because of what his death achieved. Look in the middle of verse 9. You were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Blood is a way of talking about violent, sacrificial death. That's what it means in the Bible. And no one familiar with the Bible could read this and not think of two Old Testament passages. First, the slaughtered lamb in the book of Exodus. God told the Israelites who were slaves in Egypt, my judgment is coming on Egypt. Death is coming. And God said, each Israelite family must take a lamb, slaughter it, and put some of the blood on the door frames of your houses. And when I see the blood, God said, I will pass over you. I will accept the lamb's death in place of yours. The slaughtered lamb would buy life for God's people. And those who knew their Bibles would also read this, and they would remember the prophecy of another slaughtered lamb that was to come, a servant of God mentioned in Isaiah chapter 53, a man who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, whose death would buy life for many. That's what Jesus did on the cross. His death was not an unfortunate setback for God's plans. It was a triumph. Jesus' death won. It bought a people for God out of their slavery to sin. Without the work of the slain lamb, God's purposes would not be fulfilled. The new heaven and earth would be empty. We'd all face God's judgment for our sin. 
But the lamb died as our substitute. When we trust in his work, we become part of this people he has bought with his blood. And notice this is not just about being saved from judgment. Great as that is, we have been bought for God's service. Verse 10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Being bought to serve God is not a downside of all this. It means that our lives have purpose. We don't have to make up a reason to get out of bed in the morning. We know why our hearts are beating. We know why our lungs are drawing breath. It's so we can serve God. And so we do our work, whatever it is, not for ourselves, not for our boss, not for our teacher, but for him. And his service is not burdensome. It's not drudgery. It's where we find our true fulfillment. It's what we were made for. We serve him now, and we will reign with him then on his new heaven and earth. That reality is described at the end of the book of Revelation. Well, so far we've heard part one of this new song, and the focus has been on the work of the man Jesus Christ, the descendant of Judah and David. But we've also seen clear indications that Jesus Christ is not just a man. For one thing, verse 8 told us, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb in worship. In chapter 4, they were all worshiping the Almighty on the throne. And now Jesus, the Lamb, is receiving heaven's worship as well. That already tells us Jesus is more than just a man. And parts 2 and 3 of this new song make that clear. The Lion Lamb is worthy of worship. The song was begun by the four living creatures and the 24 elders. They played the introduction on their exuberant instruments and they began the singing. But now on part two of the song, they're joined by others, masses of them in verse 11. Then I looked, John says, and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So this massive angel choir forms another circle around the throne beyond the circle formed by the elders and the living creatures. And considering the numbers here, it is an understatement to say that angelic praise is loud. The hymn writer was right to say, the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. You'll notice there are seven terms used here in verse 12. Seven things the lamb is worthy to receive. In other words, he is completely worthy of praise. 
And he is worthy of complete praise. And then in part three of this new song, the massed choir of angels is joined by all of creation. Verse 13, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The third part of our song, third part of this song, makes clear what we've already seen. The Lamb receives the same worship as the one on the throne. The praise of heaven is directed to the one on the throne and to the Lamb. The Lamb shares fully in the glory and worthiness of the Almighty. He shares in the godness of the one on the throne. Now, there's still a distinction between them. They're not the same person. The lamb was slain. The one who sits on the throne was not. And yet they share equally in this praise, honor, and glory. Both the one whose purposes for history are being fulfilled and the one who is fulfilling those purposes. And that is why all creation joins in this praise. It's because the problem of the unopened scroll has been solved. Verse 3 told us, none of these worshiping creatures are worthy to open it. But if the purposes in the scroll were to be fulfilled, if there was to be not only judgment but also salvation, then first a representative of creation had to die in the place of creation to open up a way of salvation. And so the eternal Son of God became a man at Christmas and paid the price at Easter. All creation joins in the song because it knows not just humanity, but all creation will be set free. All God's purposes will come to pass. And that's what John is going to be shown in chapter 6 to 22 of this book, when the scroll is opened. If we were to read on in those chapters, we'd see what John sees. God's purposes include not only terrible judgment on God's enemies, but also eternal blessing for God's people, those who trust in the Lamb. And God's purposes finally include the renewal of all creation. And so the weeping of verse 4 has turned into this new song of praise. And if you and I are trusting in the Lamb, then we have every reason to share in the excitement. Because the Lamb was slain, we have a secure future. The price has been paid. Through the cross, the lion has triumphed over sin and death and hell. And our risen Lord Jesus, the lion lamb, is now Lord of history. 
The unfolding events of history are in His hands. He is bringing God's eternal purposes to pass. And that means as Christians, our lives today have genuine purpose. They have eternal significance. We don't have to make up reasons to live. We are here in our little bit of history to serve the Lord of history. We go into our holiday club this week serving his purposes as we share the good news about him. And our whole lives can be a song of praise to him as we offer all of our lives to him to do his will. Revelation chapter 5 shows us when our risen Savior ascended back to heaven, he did not retire. His work goes on. And so whatever the daily headlines are, whatever's going on in the world news or the local news, we keep our eyes fixed on him. The one who rules history. And that's where we find our hope and confidence. That's how we are delivered from fear. We know the one on the throne. He is our master. He is our savior. He is our friend. So let's praise him as we sing together about the splendor of the king.
And now to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen.